Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straightway and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. The dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. It's, it's plant time. It's seedling time. So at our house in the spring, usually we grow our own seedlings. My wife is always telling me, Nick, there's no way this is cheaper than buying the plants at Menards on like May 14th. Um, but it's about teaching the kids about life and what it takes to keep something alive and bring something to life, so to speak. And we also usually um, incubate chicks and have a chick hatch at our house in the springtime. And but the plant peeking out of the soil, though, it's one of the exciting moments in growing plants. It's not the most exciting one for me. For me, the most exciting one is on April 15th, we go out and we plant the plants in the ground. And for about a week and a half, they like do nothing. They just sit there just like you put them there. And there's no difference. It feels like they will never grow and never produce any fruit. And then one day, they just start growing like crazy. And it, it feels like it's overnight. And after a week of looking at them and them doing nothing, and then one day they're just, you walk out, they're just bigger. It's such a cool feeling because what's happened is when you put them in the ground, it's kind of traumatic and the roots are all kind of bound up. And when you put them in the ground, they start rooting first. Nothing happens to the top of the plant. It's putting, it's finding water. It's, it's reaching out for new um, nutrients and stuff like that. And once it gets its roots settled, everything goes to the plant and the plant grows. And um, essentially, it grows—plants grow when they're firmly established. They don't grow until they're established, and they can only grow if they're established. And Peter uses this kind of language in 
um, 2 Peter chapter 2 about our memory verse, all that stuff that's in the memory verse. He says, listen, the reason I keep reminding you and reminding you and reminding you and reminding you of these things is so that you are firmly established in them and so you'll stay firmly established in them because what, what Peter knows is, is that it's the only way you can grow. It's the only way there's life, growth, and fruit in a human life in Christ. Now, um, one of the words that an older generation of Christians knew very well, that oftentimes a younger generation of Christians doesn't know very well, is the word discernment. Not all that long ago, um, when we talked about more things than politics publicly, the word discrimination had two meanings. It had a negative meaning, that is, um, dividing between people when there was no reason for that division, and to do it in a, in a way that was morally wrong. But the word was also used in relationship to drinking three different kinds of wines and being able to tell the difference between them. That was referred to as having a discriminating palate, for example. That you could be like, oh, that's a Merlot, and this is a blah, 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 right? And aren't you a little sommelier? Um, now, uh, now, generally speaking, both definitions—you need a word for both of those things. You need both concepts, right? There are, there are distinctions that we make just to promote ourselves and to put other people down. That is discrimination in the negative sense. And so the other, um, it's very—it's just use a different word. And one of the words we use in the Christian faith is the word discernment. Okay, you need to know this category even if you don't memorize this word. Discernment is that second meaning of discrimination. The idea that there really is a difference between things. Those differences are incredibly important, and you're able to tell the difference. You can tell the difference between something that tastes good and something that is poison. Right? And— Discernment, so discernment can simply be defined that way in that box. The ability to see with the mind of Christ. That, like it says in chapter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul calls this the mind of Christ. Everybody who comes to Jesus can receive Christ but when you receive Christ, one of the things Jesus is going to do in you next is he wants to develop in you the mind of Christ. That is, understanding the knowledge, what Peter calls the knowledge of Christ. And when you get that in there, and it is formed in wisdom, you can see the world the way it is and understand how things are going to go. And you can see with wisdom beforehand how things are going to go. That's called discernment. You can tell the difference. You can see what's going to happen. You can see the end of things, right? A little bit more involved definition would be the active— shrewd application of wisdom and faith to see what's really happening in any situation and understanding its nature, its diagnostics, and its consequence. What is the world like? What's really happening? How is it happening? How does it go from A to B, B to C, C to D, D to E, so that when you see A, you know E is going to get there because you understand the diagnostic of life and its consequence? Where does this end up usually? And if you can see that, you can be discerning. And you can, in the words of our memory verses, understand the knowledge of Christ and be discerning so that we can participate in the divine nature through faith and escape the corruption that is in the world that's rooted in our flesh or our evil desires. Right? And Peter explicitly says that this is really important because to not become discerning is to be spiritually blind. Right? In the NIV translation, it says that if we don't understand what's going on in the gospel, we're nearsighted and blind. More literally in the original text, it actually says, the noun for blind, he is the participle 
nearsighteding forget. So it said, what it more literally says is, blind he is in his nearsighted forgetfulness. So if we don't have the mind of Christ, if we don't see that how God's divine power causes us to share in the divine nature through our knowledge of Christ in such a way as we can escape the corruption that is in the world so that we can make every effort to grow in gospel-centered virtue and to make our calling election sure. If we don't see that, we're blind. Why are we blind? Because we're, bl- we're blind because in our nearsightedness we're forgetful. We forget immediately. And in spiritual things and in things of discernment, what's going to happen? Nearsightedness is the same thing as blindness. If you can't tell where A, the A is going to be and B to C and C to D and D to E, and so that you can't see that A is leading to E, you can't be farsighted. And in not being farsighted, you are always just going around the next bend, not knowing what's next. And before you know it, you are smack in the middle of the next disaster. And so you're, you might as well be blind because we're so nearsightedness in our forgetfulness. Um, that word nearsighted is only in the New Testament one time. It's not a throwaway word. And it is one of the, one of the most painful conditions of human beings is that we don't become, through the mind of Christ, farsighted. We don't become discerningly wise. Right? Now, there's two kinds of discernments in Second Peter. One is that if we want to know what's, what's happening, what's coming, what's really going on, how our lives should be directed, one of the first ways in which we misunderstand where we need to understand is how God works. And so in the passage we talked about last week, and in the passages we'll talk about in chapter 3, he stops to tell us what God is doing. Because he says, I know it looks like to you that— God is calling us to live in these promises of verses 3 through 11, but it feels like people who don't care about God are doing fine, and they're doing great, and they're getting followers, and people are liking their posts, and their life is going well, and we're struggling through hardship, and people, uh, there are real costs to believing in Jesus and following him, and it looks like God is sleeping, and he's slow to act, and like— Nothing is going the way it should be. And and Peter tells those three stories. He says, so we know God knows how to save the godly through trials, and he knows how to keep those who will not receive his mercy until the day of judgment. That is, God isn't slow. He's saving—he can save us through all of our difficulties, and he is saving punishment until judgment, which is its appropriate time. And the reason we know he's not slow is because— He's revealed that he is merciful, and mercy requires patience. Right? Like, try—just just try being merciful with somebody impatiently. It doesn't go. Right? And so if he's going to be mercy, merciful, he has to be patient. To be patient, it turns out you have to be patient. Which is going to look like to us who are in pain and who are self-justifying and are angry that things seem unjust, that looks like slowness, right? And so Peter says the first thing you have to be able to discern is how God works. He doesn't work like us. He works like he works. And the sooner we realize how God works, the sooner we'll be able to see why life is the way it is and what faith looks like, right? But then all through this book, he also says you have to understand how people work too. You have to understand how sin works. You have to understand how the corruption that is in the world works. Because if you don't understand how that works, then you have no defense against it. You can't, you can't figure out how to believe the gospel and how to walk in, in Christ and how to have the mind of Christ. If you don't understand how this works, 
And so he says, look, even in the church, even people who believe in Jesus, just like in the, in the Jewish people of old, there were false prophets. Like in the church, in this room, there are going to be false teachers because listen, sin takes people, all kinds of people, even stable people, even people you've been learning from for years. Sometimes they allow themselves to get re-entangled because sensuality is always there. Like, I've never talked to a Christian who they became a believer, they grew in faith, they had the mind of Christ, they were strong in discipleship, and part of what was strong in discipleship is their instinct to eat just didn't want trans fats anymore. Like, you walked into the kitchen, and there was like chocolate ice cream with caramel and whatever, and their instinct to eat was now so, con was now so like completely aligned with Jesus, it was like, we don't want that. We don't want that. You see that? You see that kale? That's what we want. That's what we want. Now, to a certain extent, of course, you can train your taste buds, and you don't drink soda for long enough when you're drinking, and it, it kind of tastes dirty when it was like your lifeblood. And like, there's certain things that you can train your body, but for the most part, what happens is not all your instincts go away. What happens is your instincts are under the authority of the mind of Christ of your character, of virtue, and they still do what they do. It's still fun to step into a shower that's warm and feel that on your senses and enjoy it. it you're still going to drink wine or eat ice cream and be like, that tastes good. But virtue says this much and no more. This way and not that way. This— and the two are in union with each other. But this is always trying to get out of whack again. And so somebody who has grown in faith, has the mind of Christ, has virtue— this is always still trying to get control again. And people who are at it for a long time, people you've trusted, people who, you have, who have helped you grow, people who you would say, I could never be the Christian that I've become without that person. That person can themselves come apart and be, in the words of this passage, re-entangled and overcome. And if we don't understand the way human beings work, it doesn't work. So we're going to focus on the second one today. But for both last week and this week and next week and the week after, one of the truths that, uh, that we need to understand as a new generation of Christians is that there, there is no godliness without discernment. Without the ability to discriminate rightly, to tell things that are different apart, to see what's good and what's evil, and to be able to tell the difference between them. Right? In fact, in some translations, in the book of Leviticus, when God says, you have to be holy because I'm holy, he says, you must discriminate between good and evil, which what that word means is discern. You have to be able to tell the difference what's going to kill you and what's going to make you strong. What's wrong and what's right, what's, what's foolish and what's wise, what's honest and what's a lie, what's beautiful and what's ugly. You have to be able to tell the difference. And you have to be able to tell the difference in yourself, and you have to be able to tell the difference in people who want to lead and teach you, right? And so there's two things. One is, we, ha we have to discern what vanity and sensuality does in human beings, especially to people who want to lead us. And secondly, we have to discern the realities of human vulnerability. One of the most dangerous things for a human being is, is not to understand in which ways you are vulnerable and in which ways you aren't. Right? So the first is, Discerning from the signals of vanity and sensuality. So the verse that was, that was skipped in the reading is, so the, the passage before this ends with, there, it tells the three stories of God saving certain people out of situations and him condemning others. And he says, because of these, therefore we know God is able to save the godly through trials and to hold the wicked 
for punishment until the day of judgment, right? And then it says this one, verse 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. So that's the transition. He says, this is what God, this is how God works, but let me tell you something about people and the, the actions of corruption that are particularly damnable, but that you also need to discern so that you can be free of them. And they, the two deadest giveaways is somebody who is given to sensuality and vanity and somebody who despises authority. And the first one he's going to pay attention to is despising authority. Now, I know this is a little touchy because right now we're in a cultural atmosphere in which um, there is a view that's on the ascendancy that you can't just sit around. You have to get out there and fight and, and speak against authority. And you might have to like— um, not just protest, you might have to riot. Um, you shouldn't listen to people. Parents don't have inherent authority over their kids. You have to earn your authority over your children. There's an extraordinary misunderstanding, an unchristian understanding of how we're meant to interact with authority. Authority is a common grace. Authority is a fundamental part of reality. And one of the things that Peter is saying here is, is that one of the deadest giveaways that somebody who wants to lead you is not just damnable, but particularly damnable, especially damnable, is that they despise the right authority. That's really important to recognize. Our, our, and that's not, that's not taught in our cultural moment. It's not part of the secular mentality of the moment. Um, in fact, he's, this is the way he explains it. He says, listen— um, even angels—now, an, the, the difference between angels and demons, there's just one different main difference between angels and demons. Angels understand the right authority of the universe, and demons don't. That's basically the difference. And he said, even when angels go out and execute God's judgment against celestial beings, that is, devils or demons, they don't talk smack. They're not arrogant. They don't boast. They just show up and they deliver. In the book of Jude, which is very similar to Second Peter, um, Jude is, is making the same point, and he says, um, there was a moment in, in celestial history where after Moses had died, the archangel Michael was disputing with Satan himself over Moses' physical body. And he said, and in that moment, the most powerful of the angels did not say anything beyond, Satan, the Lord rebukes you. That is, you don't have the authority to take Moses' body. I am taking Moses' body. Step away. That's it. Nothing. I imagine that there was trash talking that occurred to the celestial intelligence of the Archangel Michael. I, I mean, I, I suspect that there was some swagger he would have liked to show or so on, but he didn't. Because he was a being under authority. And though Satan deserved anything he could have given him, he gave him nothing. And the reason for that is because condemnation is God's, not even his. The archangel Michael is capable of delivering condemnation. He's never sinned. He's not subject to our own depravity. He's not given to unrighteous vengeance. None of those things are true about him. They are true about us, which is why we can't do it. But in addition to that, he had no authority to do it. 
Judgment belongs to the Lord, not to us and not to angels, not even the highest archangel, even when he's dealing with the most blameworthy demon. And so both Jude and Peter make this point. If that is how angels behave in relationship to authority, how should you behave? And what does it tell you when somebody doesn't behave that way in relationship to right authority? After that, he, he says this. He says, the main comparison that Peter makes to these leaders is he says, listen, sensuality and vanity, it'll make a beast out of you. The language of the 1982 version is a brute beast. I'm making an animal. That is, the, things that, the thing that distinguishes you, the image of God, the capacity for reason, the ability to virtue, that which makes you human and therefore immortal, right? That, that which God gave you to distinguish you from animals is destroyed when one gives themselves over to the corruption of the world because the flesh takes over and we become these creatures of sinful fleshly compulsion. And we're just repeating our compulsion over and over and over. Everything's about our vanity. Everything's about our sensuality. And we don't submit to anything. I mean, think about it this way. <clears throat> what could be said about a pig in relationship to pride? Do pigs step aside and say, oh, after you, you have your shot at the slop first. Right? They act, they act arrogantly because they're utterly ignorant of what humility would look like. Right? And do they do whatever feels good? Yeah, they're animals. They just do whatever feels good. They make piglets. They eat slop. They roll in the mud because it feels cool. They snort. They just, right? Charlotte's Web is, a, is actually a, 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 not a fictional tale, right? I mean, they're, they're not that interesting. And it's because they are brute beasts. And the text says that there's a certain kind of creature that though they share certain physiological similarities to us, in, including instincts and desires, they're fundamentally different because their moral status is that they are created and destroyed. That's it. They come into creation and they're destroyed. They exist for an end and they have a purpose, but it's not one in which they are humble virtuous and connected to reasonable and moral authority in the structures of the universe. All of which is supposed to be true of humans. And the therefore the indicators of sensuality and pride and rejection of authority are all indicators that sensuality and vanity possesses the soul of the person who behaves this way. Including pretending he knows all kinds of things about celestial stuff he knows nothing about or acts vainly and expects that their authority is for some other purpose as well to enrich themselves. Remember, they're not just—because he says, um, they are in your church and their eyes are full of adultery, right? They're always seducing who? The unstable, right? Because every church is full of some people that are easy marks, right? And that's who they focus on. And— that's not it, though. They're also experts in—remember? And they're experts in greed. Do you remember Lloyd's list from three weeks ago? Greed, pride, lust. 
They're there. And you see, here's the thing. Now you might be like, well, Nick, that's really simple. It's, in some ways it's simple. In other ways, you have to grow more sophisticated in seeing the marks of it. But here's the thing. Once you know that human beings are very predictable, once you know that sin is really predictable, once you know that we're all pretty, get, pretty much given to the same kinds of stuff, and once you know to look for vanity and sensuality and a misuse of authority— and a rejection of authority. And once you realize that those are particularly damnable things, then when you spot them in people, and when you spot them having control over people, you know, like, you're like, oh, warning, warning, warning. That is not the person that I'm supposed to be submitting to. That's not the person who should be teaching me about the knowledge of Christ. That's not the person that I should be looking to to help me know Christ. Understand? Because sensuality will always make beasts out of us. He says that they're just like creatures. He calls them an accursed brood, which is a word we use for snakes. And then he says the most poignant biblical passage describing them is to say, remember Balaam, who was a prophet, but in his madness was beating his mule to death because it didn't do what he wanted. And the dumb beast, God gave him the ability to talk to the prophet to restrain his bestial madness. Right? And becoming beasts through the corruption of the world as the flesh takes over all of what we are under, that rejects God's authority and ultimately unders, enters under his punishment is literally the definition of damnation. To where there's nothing left to us of the image of God. Only the flesh has become everything. All of our being is a swirling around of repeated compulsions, and it receives the right condemnation of God at the day of judgment. That's what damnation is. It is us becoming beasts. But we were meant to be so much more than that. And being able to discern is one of the most important things, which includes, which includes one more thing in relationship, not just to their vanity, but when they appeal to us, they'll appeal to our vanity. So he says this, their mouth, they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from error. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. So let me, let me give you a really subtle example of this that I've probably done, okay? Because honestly, if you go to this church, who are you supposed to be making sure doesn't become this person that you need to make sure you stop following them if they become this person? Me. Right? I'm telling you this so that if I become this person, you will stop following me. Here's one. Listen, guys. Um, you, when you got married, you thought that you and your, life were, you and your wife were going to make love more. And part of the reason you don't are for these seven reasons. And if you learn to cherish her in these seven ways, um, you're going to find her attitude towards you is very different. Right? Oh. What did I just, what did I just appeal to? You see, what, you see what just happened there? Now, I can give you seven perfectly biblical principles. Perfectly biblical principles. And you can use those principles to love your wife. And your, your wife may feel very loved by them, and you may both grow in godliness because of it. But my appeal was actually to your sensuality. That was my appeal. Not, um— the reason why you're unfulfilled is because you don't care enough about your wife because of your own selfishness to actually love her like she's meant to be loved. And because of that, she's not favorably disposed towards you, and your sensuality is really upset because of it. 
which tends to happen. Now, if you will repent and believe in Jesus and, and step into the honorability of what it means to love your wife as a divine image bearer, somewhere down the line, you may find something related to your sensuality being pleased in a way that's perfectly biblical. But right this minute, we need to talk about our sin, our repentance, our dying to ourselves, and our embracing of Christ's glory, no matter what it produces. Right? Do you see the difference between those two appeals? And it's so easy to appeal to people's sensuality. We do it all the time. We do it with our kids. We do it with our spouses. We do it at work. Our bosses do it with us. We're co- everybody is constantly, every politician appealing to voters. I mean, when was the last time a politician appealed to us and said, now this isn't in your self-interest, but we'll be better for everybody in the long run as if we do this? Very rarely, right? You deserve this. I'm going to get this for you. Other people are taking this from you. I'm going to stop them. The world rings with appeals to our vanity and appeals to our sensuality. You need someone in your life that appeals to something else. That appeals to the fact that you're made in the image of God. That you weren't made to be dominated by sensuality and by drives and by your compulsions and by the corruptions of the flesh. And God has given you a divine power in Christ to put—subjugate those things to their right place. And to use life in the body for love, not to indulge the flesh. And that in Christ this can happen. And in Christ and in participating in the divine nature, you can escape the corruption that is in the world. That you can add to faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. You get it? Not the compulsions of the flesh. And in that self-control, perseverance throughout all the days of your life, and then it'll produce godliness, and therefore brotherly kindness, and ultimately actual, real, divine image-bearing love. And that's how you need to appeal to yourself, and your kids, and your spouse, and your coworkers, and each other in the church. Otherwise, we're, we're just appealing to each other <laughs> in a particularly damnable way. And we are showing that we are—all we're doing is promising freedom while we ourselves are really going to be slaves of depravity because we're a slave of whatever's mastered us. And what's mastered most of us is our pride and our sensuality and our compulsions and our justification of those things by despising the authorities that tell us we shouldn't do them, including the Spirit, the Scriptures, the Gospel, and the Lord. Now, the second thing is to discern what we can from the reality of human vulnerability. In this, in this passage, there's three different categories where Peter's like, look, these people are particularly vulnerable, right? One is the unstable, right? He says, with eyes full of adultery, they seduce the unstable. Now, that's not a particularly flattering category, but, but it applies to most of us, right? You're unstable if you don't stably control the desires of the flesh. So, do you find yourself shopping online when you're supposed to be working? Do you find yourself in the kitchen eating things and not really knowing why you're doing it? Do you find yourself looking at pictures of women because you're interested in the news story about them and realize three paragraphs in that you really clicked on that to look at their boobs? Do you find yourself bursting into anger or into sarcasm whenever anybody contradicts you? Do you—I could go on here for quite some time, couldn't I? All of those are indications of instability. 
There's some of you in this room that like, you can tell by your bank account, by who you've dated, by who your friends are, that something is off, right? Your friends call you a loser magnet behind your back. And here's the thing about this. Um, I've known a number of people that I have—I don't say behind their back when I have to tell people I tell them to their face. And I've said, sweetie, you're a loser magnet, and I, I want you to understand that you're a wonderful—usually these are women, but there's some men too. You're a wonderful person. But this instability in you isn't just hurting you. It makes you a mark for other people. They see it. It's like coyotes looking at a group of elk and seeing that one of them is limping. They can see your daddy wound a mile away. They know you're the one. You're so sweet and vivacious, and you're so available. And there's—but but listen, there's other instabilities. Like, I think of myself as a stable person because we all do, right? But listen, and this is my third most embarrassing thing in my whole life, okay? I once—oh, man, I hate it. So embarrassing. I once bought a cruise because the salesman appealed to my intelligence, flattered my intelligence. I like I lit- I did that. Like in, I didn't know in the moment, but in retrospect, I knew that's why I somehow felt connected to him as a salesman, and ultimately he like leveraged. I, I mean, like I look back at that, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I was a grown man. How did that happen? But like my vanity is how it happened, right? And so on some level, we're all unstable. And so discernment allows us, like, like I learned some stuff about discernment from that event. And hopefully, I mean, it won't happen this week. But that's how discernment happens. We realize our instabilities. We grow in our understanding of them. And hopefully we do better. And, and, and Christ begins to form a new way of functioning. We begin to see things we didn't see before. The second group is people just escaping, right? So he says, there are certain people that are just escaping those who live in error. That is, people who are just believing in Jesus. Like, they hear the gospel. They hear about God's divine power to transform their lives. They hear about what Christ has done. They hear something about the knowledge of Christ. And they're like, yes, yeah, yeah, I want that. That's right, I believe. And, but they're still really vulnerable because they don't really know what that means. Right? And so then these guys come along and they promise freedom and they appeal to their sensuality, but they wrap it in theological language. And these folks, they're just not discerning enough to know yet. And who wants to die? And so these kinds, the kinds of leaders Peter is attacking, they, these people are just drawn in by them because they're like, oh, I want my life to change. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to experience these blessings. I want these things to happen. And oh, I can do that by essentially giving into my sensuality. That sounds great. And they don't realize that these folks are slaves of the very things they say you can be free about. And so when people are just coming to faith, you have to be especially careful, right? When, when Jesus told the story of the, of the sower, right, there's the, the seeds that got eaten up right away. That is, people never were even able to believe, right? But there's, a, there's the seeds that were shallow and they grew up and quick died. He said, those are people who come and believe with joy, but because trouble comes along, like any problem in their life, or persecution because of the word, that is because of Jesus, that is like a wet blanket because they want to be told they can follow Jesus in the flesh. They can follow Jesus by just obeying their sensuality. They don't have to, they don't have to die to any of that. And when they, and when, 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 
when pressure comes, when hurt and difficulty, where obedience begins to enter in, and where you begin to experience the authority of God and believing in the authority of God, that you can walk through something, and that God can save the godly through trials, but he can maintain or hold the ungodly for punishment until the day of judgment. When you begin to believe that because of how God functions, because he's mercifully patient, not slow, that is a scandal to the just believing. And many of them just go, you know what? I'm going to follow that guy. And there's always many false teachers that are willing to say, hey, listen, let me appeal to your flesh, and I'll tell you how we can do this. You're a good person. You don't have to do that stuff. That's just, those are religious. But they're all legalists. You don't, don't listen to them. He's, they're just so negative. They're always talking about negative things. Right? Oops. And then lastly, he says that, um, and at this point he gets ambiguous, whether he's talking about all the Christians or these false teachers. And he says, he says, they, having escaped the corruption of the world through a knowledge of Christ. And the, here's, here's something you, you would know um, unless you got to, to study it this week. Um, in the Greek language, there is the word to know, gnosko. But, but you can also put a preposition on the front of it, epi, which means not just knowledge, but like full, complete knowledge. And that's the word Peter uses. He says, those who have escaped through the epigenosis, the full or complete knowledge of Christ. But if they are enticed, that is, and then entangled and ultimately overcome because of that entangling, they're in a worse position than if they'd never heard about Jesus in the first place. Now, I'm not going to get into whether or not you can lose your salvation. Are these people really saved? Blah, all of that right now, okay? This is the, the second best verse in the whole Bible that you can lose your salvation. In case you're ever having that argument and you want to play that side. Here's the point. On one level, none of us can ever know in God's secret knowledge who's really, 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 really saved. All we can know is pastorally, functionally, do people look saved? Do we feel saved? Do we appear saved? Right? And are we invulnerable if we are? And what this passage is saying is that you can feel like you really know God that you have the mind of Christ, that your heart is full of Jesus, that you're really in the faith, and it, yet if you allow sensuality and vanity and in it a rejection of right authorities to creep back in and begin to re-entangle you, and if that entanglement comes to fruition and ultimately overcomes you, you aren't saved. And, you, and the damnability of that is much greater than if you would have been ignorant. And so therefore, for the teachers that do that, or for those of us who might allow ourselves to be re-entangled and then overcome, we need to be discerning about our own vulnerability. There is no one who is functionally invulnerable. And if we understand what Jesus teaches, because in John 10, he still says, right, I don't lose sheep that are mine. I don't lose sheep that are mine. The Bible says at the same time, you can have a sense of assurance in Christ and be discerning about a realistic vulnerability that we all possess. And that those can happen at the same time. There's never going to be not enough of Jesus for you to be kept. There's always going to be enough of Jesus for you to be kept. There couldn't be anyone in the history of the world that is entangled and overcome and taken away from Jesus that there was not enough Jesus' help for them to be kept. That can't be true. Jesus explicitly says, listen, I'm a shepherd. I'm a good one. I don't lose sheep. Wolves don't mess with me, right? He says that, and yet here it says, listen, you need to understand that you can believe you have the epigenosis of Christ, the full and complete knowledge of Christ, 
But if you allow sensuality to entangle and overcome you, you will die. You will be exceptionally damnable. And your place will be much worse than if you had just been ignorant all along. And because of that, you and I need to be discerning about human vulnerability and the ways in which we're vulnerable. And your greatest vulnerability, spiritually speaking, is temptation, a temptation to your sensuality and the flesh, which is usually going to be an appeal to either pride, vanity, or sensuality, indulgence. And wrapped up in that is to take away the thing that could save you, which is the law. Because when that sneaky appeal of sensuality comes in that flatters you and appeals to your sensuality, you're going to remember that God said, you can't do that. (laughs) Right? You're going to be like, oh, but my husband isn't adoring me, or my wife doesn't treat me very well, and this is kind of a dead-end job, and I deserve to be happy, and I'm going to do this. And with this thing, you're going to remember God is like, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. No, no, no. You, you promised. You did this. You said, this is what nobility looks like. You can't do that. Which means despising authority is always wrapped up in the vanity and the sensuality. And when that happens, you, you and I have to know, be schooled in, be discerning about our vulnerabilities. Because listen, if we're in that moment nearsighted, we're blind. Sometimes this is true in, in a lot of New Testament passages that the thing that really brings home the truth of the passage is actually the, old, the passing Old Testament quotation. And a lot of you may not have read the story of Balaam. If you haven't, go to Numbers 22 this afternoon and read it. It's only like three chapters. And um, the, the Israelites are coming into the Promised Land, and they're passing Moab. Now, Moab is a nation that is essentially relatives of the Jews. They're not a group of people that the Jews are supposed to conquer or fight with. And so the Jews are like, hey, can we pass through your land? And you're not really supposed to let armies pass through your land because they're notoriously for doing terrible things to your land. They spy it out, and they steal your food, and they drink your water— and they bring cattle diseases through it, all this kind of stuff. Um, you can read about this in the history of the Crusades. When the, when the Western European armies were going through Germany, for example, to get to, to Byzantium, like, they would try to buy food, and if you didn't sell them what they wanted, they price, they'd raid your countryside, and they killed Jews, and they did all kinds of crazy stuff, right? There's, there's a lot of reasonability of, like, not wanting a whole nation of people to go through your land. But it's also unneighborly. And these people were in the desert, and what they needed was some food and water, and it, they, and Moab was under that responsibility. So Balak, their king, um, knew of a prophet named Balaam, who was like the Old Testament's second Melchizedek, if you know who he is. Like, not part of God's chosen people, but literally a priest of God Most High. When we find Balaam, he is greater than Melchizedek, in the sense that he is known to be able to speak a curse over people, a nation of people, and they'll be cursed. And if he speaks a blessing over a nation of people, they'll be blessed. Because he hears from God Most High, the real God, what nations he's blessing, what nations he's cursing. Balaam can speak to them. They come true because he's in line with God's will. He is this—the most powerful spiritual person anybody knows about, and it's because he knows the real God. And so Balak sends an emissary to them with some money, and they come to Balaam, and they say, Listen, we want you to curse this nation Israel— because we know the people you curse are cursed, and the people you bless are blessed. Will you do it? And he says, um, he says, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. Let me ask. So he goes and he asks God, and it says that God says to him, um, these are my people, and I have determined that they would be blessed, and they are going to be blessed. 
So Balaam goes back and he says, listen guys, I talked to God about this and he says that um, these people are blessed and I can't say anything evil about them, so I'm sorry, but this isn't going to work. And so they go home and Balak hears that and he says, okay. So then he gets his really fashionable people. He gets his connected politicians and his pretty women and stuff and he gets a whole bunch more money and he sends them. And they go to Balaam and they say, listen, we need you to curse these people. And Balaam says, listen, I, listen, you could give me a palace made of gold full of silver and I couldn't curse these people unless God told me to. Right? Sounds good so far? And then he says this. But let me go ask him. To which 18th century preacher Charles Simeon said, Say what? He said it in very Cambridge British English. But basically, say, say what? I'm sorry, God said, These people I, are my people. I have determined to bless them. You say this really nice spiritual thing. Look, I can't say anything against him, even if you give me all the gold in the world. And then you go, But let me go ask him? And so he does. And God says to him, well, listen, if you need to come and ask me again, if they've come again with really fashionable people, maybe you should go with them. And so he goes with them. And as he's riding along on his donkey, God sends an angel with a drawn sword to kill him. Okay? And the donkey can see the angel, but Balaam can't. And so he, like, tries to get off the path because, like, you want to get away from somebody with a sword, right? And Balaam's like, stupid donkey. And he, like, he's hitting it with a stick. And they finally get to this place where there's two vineyard walls right up to the wall, right? And the, the donkey tries to get around the angel and crushes his foot against the wall. And, like, that's his foot, and that hurts. And so he goes ballistic. That is, he goes bestial on this animal and is beating him savagely like he's an animal, Right? And then one more time, right? The donkey tries to go the way. He's beating him. He's like beating this thing to death. And, and then God allows in his mercy the donkey to talk. Only time in the Old Testament an animal talks. Okay, this isn't a regular occurrence. One time for one second, right? And the donkey's like, Balaam, ah, oh, have I ever done this before? Like you've been riding on me for years. Have I ever done this? And, he, and so he's like, no? He didn't go, why are you talking, right? So he's, like, he's like, I mean, no. And he's like, I'm trying to help you. There's an angel trying to kill us. And then God lets Balaam see the angel with the sword. And so there's this angel standing right there with a sword, right? And angels have really good swords, right? And so Balaam says this, you know, listen— if I have offended you, I'll go back. Which is kind of like somebody pointing a gun in your face and you going, are, are you upset? <laughs> right? And so what does he do? The angel disappears. He gets back on his donkey. He keeps riding. He gets to Balak, and Balak's like, well, let's curse people. So they sacrifice eight bulls, because of course if you kill more bulls, God changes his mind. And so he goes to receive the curse from God. God gives a blessing. So he goes back, and he gives the blessing, because he's a man of God, right? And then Balak goes, fine, we'll try a different place, because maybe 300 yards over that way, God will change his mind. So they sacrifice all the same bulls again. Balak goes to receive the curse. He gets a blessing, comes back. He tells them the blessing. And Balak's like, ugh. He's like, let's do one more. So they go to another place. Sacrifice eight bulls again. Balaam goes to get the curse. God gives a blessing, which is actually kind of a curse on Balak and his people. And Balaam goes back and he gives the, the blessing, right? And then Balak goes, well, we tried. And if you can't come up with a curse, I can't come up with a paycheck. 
See ya. And then the story just ends. And the heading of chapter 25 is, Moab seduces Israel. Very next verse, a bunch of Moabite women basically seduce and start a fornicating with a bunch of Israelite men and then invite them to worship their God because their God has that involved in their worship, apparently, the Baal of Peor. And there becomes this like intramural fun going on with the Moabite women, which leads God to be angry with his people and start a plague among them. It gets far enough where there's one point where the daughter of the, of the Moabite chieftain, who's, who's butting up against the land there, and one of the, one of the prince sons of the line of Simeon, walk in front of everybody into his tent, right? So these, I mean, this is like, this is a major alliance apparently being made, right? In a very recreational fashion. And so Phineas, who's one of the priests within the lines of Levite, he goes and gets a spear, goes into the tent, and puts it through both of them, which means they may have not been standing. It's hard to get enough leverage to go through two people standing. But if they're horizontal, it's much easier. And at, it says at that point, the plague ended. And then several chapters later, in chapters 30 and 31, the Israelites go to war with Moab. They slaughter all of the men of that region. They take all the donkey and other stuff and the women hostage. And then Moses says to them, you can't let these women live. Right? And when they fight in Moab, they find Balaam and they kill him. And then Moses says, you can't let these women live because these are the women that Balaam told to seduce Israel to turn the Lord's heart to anger and to punish us, costing the lives of 24,000 people. Any one of these women who's been with a man, you kill. And anyone that's a virgin, a virgin can live because they weren't part of this. Now think about this. Balaam is the priest of the Most High God. He talks to God Most High. He curses and blesses nations. Okay? He told them he couldn't accept their money. But he left the door open. He thought about what might happen. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe there'll be a way. He gets the end. He never gets a curse, right? And then what does he do? Well, I'm a prophet, and so I can't actually use my authority to curse them. But let me tell you, because here's what he had. He had proprietary knowledge about the blessing and cursing of God. That's what he had as a prophet. He knew why God cursed people and why God blessed people. He knew about covenants and promises and truths. He knew about the character of God Most High, and he knew that though he couldn't pronounce a curse, there was a, a way to create a curse. And he gave Balak the information. It was his idea. Think about this. For money, by means of sensuality, despising authority. Get it? Get it? It's exactly what Peter's been saying this whole passage. Right? What we have to be able to discern is vanity and pride and greed. The use of sensuality 
And always bound up with that is the absolute rejection of authority, that these are particularly damnable. And listen, if Balaam's safe, you're not safe, okay? You just need to understand that. All of us humans, we're all vulnerable. We all have to be vigilant. That's why we need each other. That's why we need friendships. That's why we need spiritual friendships. That's why we need small groups. That's why we need sermons. That's why we come together and worship. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we remind ourselves of the gospel. That's why we discern what leaders we should learn from and which leaders we should not learn from. That's, that's why we learn about God's ways so that we know that he's merciful and therefore patient and not slow. So we're, no, we're not enticed because we're unstable, so that we're not stolen when we're just coming out of error, and so that even if we think we're secure because we have the epigenosis of Christ himself, that we don't realize that if we are not vigilant in discernment, everybody can be re-entangled and overcome, and their fate can be worse than if they'd never known in the first place. <clears throat> all, all he's calling us to is just back to chapter 1, verse 3. Listen, you need to believe God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the mind of Christ, through our knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and goodness, through which he's given us his very great and precious promises, through which we can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world. Therefore, don't give yourselves to sensuality or vanity or despising of authority, right? Make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control over sensuality and over the compulsion of your instincts. Self-control and build on self-control perseverance. And if you do, it will produce godliness. And out of godliness will come real mutual affection, which will produce love. And if we don't, we're blind because we're nearsightedly forgetful. But instead, we have to make, we should be all the more eager to make our calling and election sure, because if we do, we will receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, um, we realize that sometimes a negative message is necessary in order for us to see the weight of the positive one and what it contrasts with and how we're meant to see it. And we pray that you would help us to become people of discernment. That we would be discriminating in the best possible sense between things that should be distinguished and that we'd be able to see good and evil, right and wrong, beauty and ugliness, foolishness and wisdom for what they are, that we would have the mind of Christ formed in us. Please, Holy Spirit, come and form in us the mind of Christ. Remind us until we are, that, that we would be firmly established and not unstable and just escaping, but that even when we're firmly established, that you would, you would hover over us like a cultivator, and that we would learn to hover over our own trust in you and over each other as a cultivator, taking away the pests and seeking for the, root, the rooted faith to grow and flourish and be fruitful, and that faith and virtue and knowledge would not fail to progress on to self-control against vanity and sensuality and perseverance. And we pray, Father, that bound up in that would be an increased submission to your true and right authority and all true and right authorities in our life so that whenever we do have to protest or whenever we do need to speak truth to power, we do it with the boldness of the truth, with the utter respect 
necessary of one who rightly understands how you see authority, and that only your authority could cause us to speak against another right authority for the right reasons and the right way. Help us to be the kind, become the kind of people of discerning vigilance that flourish and flower and that are firmly established. Pray in Jesus' name.